Hey everyone, Pastor Ben here, and today we are going over Genesis chapter 2. I know everyone's super excited for that. Again, the way I'm doing this is I'm not really going verse by verse, and uh, I'm more trying to focus on how understanding the surrounding culture can help influence our understanding of what's happening in the text, and also how what's happening in the text can shape our understanding of what the text is actually trying to say. And also different like cultural clues that the text can give us to give us a better understanding of the actual context that the Bible was written in. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to be comparing and contrasting Genesis 1 and 2, highlighting you know some of the differences there and what those differences mean, and also similar to how we did Genesis 1, uh, exploring the theological themes of Genesis 2. So let's actually get into Genesis chapter 2. So there are a couple ways that people tend to interpret the relationship between Genesis 1 and 2. And the two main ways people interpret it are as a chronological or a continuation. So Genesis 1 and 2 are chronologically in order. The second view is that the relationship between Genesis 1 and 2 is a matter of scale. So Genesis 1 is talking about creation of all things, and then in Genesis 2, it just focuses in on that same process that happened in Genesis 1, but in a very specific place. So really, Genesis 1 and 2 happen at the same time. It's just a matter of what scale. So those are two main ways Genesis 1 and 2 are interpreted. Obviously, there's a lot of different ways to interpret it, but those two are the most common from my experience. So now I want to go through more specifically Genesis 1 and 2. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we have an order of creation that takes place. And one of the common ways that Genesis 1 is interpreted is that you have three days of creating and then you have three days of filling. So for example, in Genesis 1, on the first day, there's light. Second day, there's sky. On the third day, the dry land appears. Then you have the seas. You have the plants and the trees. So those are the three days of creating. And then you have day four, the sun, moon, and stars. Day five, you have creatures in the sea and the sky. And then on day six, you have creatures on the land and humans are made. So the three days of creating followed by the three days of filling. And that is an overview of how Genesis 1 flows in terms of the process of creation. Genesis 2 is pretty different, though. And it starts in Genesis 2, verse 4, saying, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. So right away, you can tell that Genesis 2 doesn't even see itself as a continuation of Genesis chapter 1. So the idea that Genesis 1 and 2 are chronological right out of the gate in Genesis 2, verse 4, that idea is discounted already. Something else happens in Genesis 2 that's pretty interesting. Um, in Genesis 2, verse 5, you have this reference that at this point of creation, no shrub had appeared on the earth and no rain had appeared. And also there was no one to work the ground. And that is the explanation behind why no shrub had appeared on the earth. The reason I point that out is because in Genesis 1, human beings are the last thing that's created. However, in Genesis 2, the idea that's being presented in the second verse of the creation account is that human beings are necessary in order for the rest of creation to happen. So actually, human beings are created at the beginning of the process, or at least towards the beginning of the process, instead of at the end. Now, I brought this up one time at a church, and I was pretty interested in some of the response that I got. 
because there was uh, someone there, and I'm not saying this to be disrespectful to the person. Um, this is just the way the story goes. So there's a person there who uh, interpreted Genesis 1 and 2 chronologically, and the way that they reconciled that difference is they pointed to the fact that in Genesis 2 verse 5, they said, oh, well, Genesis 2 verse 5 is specifically referring to shrubs. So obviously in Genesis chapter 1, it said vegetation and trees and all those other plants were created. But in Genesis 2, it says, but no shrubs were created. And so that's actually not conflicting with the continuum theory of Genesis 1 and 2's relationship. But shrubs needed humans. And that argument was interesting to me because it it made it seem like God was one of the knights who say knee. Well, what is it you want? We want a shrubbery! A what? But anyways, so the rest of Genesis 2's creation account sort of goes like this. That water flows from the ground, not rain, by the way, just water flowing from the ground. And then God creates a garden, the Garden of Eden. Then he makes man and he places that man in the garden. And then you have trees that begin to grow. Then that man is given a command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he can eat from the tree of life, which is also a thing that's planted in the middle of the garden. Then you have the animals that are created and they are brought to the man in order to be named. And then God sees that man is lonely. So he causes the man to go into a sleep. He takes the rib out of the man and creates a woman to be his companion and helpmate. And of course, both the man and the woman were both naked, but they felt no shame. And it's established that the story of the man and the woman is the reason why a man will leave his father and mother, be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So that is the Genesis 2 creation account in a nutshell. And just on the surface, you can tell that there's conflicts in the order. Like I already mentioned one way at the beginning, which is that Genesis 2 assumes that humans were necessary in order for the rest of the creation process to happen. So the order is is very, very different than Genesis chapter 1. Some people reconcile this by treating the relationship as like constantly going back and forth, which I find very convoluted. Uh, it's like, okay, on the first day this happened, but then we have to turn to Genesis chapter 2 in order to explain the more specific things. And then, okay, then we'll go to the second day in Genesis chapter 1. Oh, but then we have to jump back to Genesis 2 to explain the specifics of what happens there. The problem is the order doesn't line up very cleanly when you do that, and that just doesn't make a lot of sense. And there's things that are in Genesis chapter 1 that are not in Genesis chapter 2, and there's things in Genesis chapter 2 that are not in Genesis chapter one. It seems like the most logical conclusion to come to, in my opinion, is that Genesis 1 and 2 are separate creation accounts. So that's just looking at the order of how the creation is different in Genesis 1 and 2. But I also want to mention a couple other things. And one of those is the difference in how language is used. So in Genesis chapter 1, the word for God is strictly Elohim. And the Genesis 1 account only uses Elohim when referring to God. But when we switch over to Genesis chapter 2, you have Yahweh Elohim. And again, you see this in English with the presence of the word Lord with all the letters capitalized. That is a translation of the tetragrammaton, tetra, tet, tetra, tetragrammaton, tet, the four Hebrew letters from which we get the name Yahweh. Anyways, in Genesis 2, you have Yahweh Elohim every time God is referenced. Linguistically, there is a very obvious difference there, which leads to people claiming that Genesis 1 and 2 were written by different people, which even just the presence of, you know, Elohim versus Yahweh Elohim 
you could definitely make that argument. I think that's actually a pretty compelling argument because there is no crossover. But the way God creates in Genesis 1 versus Genesis 2 is different also. In Genesis chapter 1, the creative process is motivated by a vocalization of God's will. Anytime something is created, it's a result of, and God said, and God said this, and then God said that, and then that happens. In Genesis 2, the creative process is very interactive. God doesn't just say things. We have instances where God forms, God sends, God places, God makes, God brings. So God's not so much just commanding things. He is interacting with creation, almost like the image of a craftsman sort of forming things. It's very personal. Also, I want to do a tangent here. So when man is created in Genesis chapter one, it's a result of God's will. God creates them male and female blah, blah, blah. In Genesis 2, God forms the man out of the dust. Again, it's a very personalized image, like God actually shaping something. And then we have uh, God breathing into the man, the breath of life, and then the man becomes a living being. You have probably heard it said that when God breathes life into the man, the word there that's used for breath is the Hebrew word ruach, which is not just breath. It is also spirit or wind. Oftentimes, ruach refers to the spirit of God himself. And so that has led to the interpretation that the reason that mankind has uh, our sense of spiritual things and the way that we have our relationship with God the way that we do is because... God formed us with his own spirit. Now, that's actually a bit problematic because when you really look into the Hebrew of Genesis chapter 2, Ruach is not used there, which is disheartening to me because I grew up being taught by people that I thought knew better. And I'm not referring to like my local youth leader or anything. I'm referring to like actual teachers in the church who like publish books and make movies like, like you know, high profile teachers have communicated that when God forms the man out of the dust and he breathes life, that that word is ruach, God giving him his own spirit. But that word is not used there. Actually, the word that's used there is the more generic term for breath, and it's the same word for breath that is used to reference the life that animals have. It's just the breath of life. And I know for some people... Uh, that might blow your mind, and I'll come back to that point later. So now I want to change gears. I want to talk about the theological claims that Genesis 2 is making. So first off, Genesis 2 is making the claim that humans actually have a relationship with the divine, and it's a very unique relationship. It is that human beings are servants, but they are not slaves, and there is a clear distinction there. Like human beings are given responsibility. They are given tasks. They're also given a moral, moral responsibility as well. And in fact, the way that Genesis 2 verse 5 is written, it actually implies that mankind is necessary in order for God's creation to exist. So that's pretty cool. Coming back to the Ruach thing, uh, it's clear that when Adam and Eve were made, they did not have what's referred to as the indwelling spirit of God. And that's pretty significant. Um, and it also definitely has significance on how we interpret Acts chapter 2, which is the moment of Pentecost. Because in Acts chapter 2, you have the Spirit of God descending upon the people there, and the Spirit of God actually lives within people. So rather than the Spirit of God being an external force or an external uh, embodied presence, it is something that lives within the people in Acts chapter 2. Now that moment is significant, not because it is a return to how things were in Genesis 2, it's because in Acts chapter 2, that is a brand new thing 
that is happening that has not happened throughout the history of all things, according to scripture. Because again, in Genesis 2, when mankind is given breath to live, that breath is not the spirit of God. So there's a lot I could say about that one. I'll just leave it there for now. The next theological claim of Genesis 2 refers to the role of humans and morality. So human beings are given free will. Certainly, they're also given moral responsibility. That is articulated in the presence of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where Adam is told, okay, you can eat from this tree and you can eat from everything else, but you cannot eat from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that is a moral command, but that's actually not the only command that the man is given. For example, man is uh, given tasks to complete. So in you know, interacting with the creative process and then in naming the animals. And then when the woman is made, she is made as a helpmate. And that sort of assumes that there's a background moral imperative given to the man. He's not just created to sit there and just do whatever. There is a moral obligation of stewardship and being a steward of God's creation and being active in that process and in that role. And so you can make the argument that that is also a moral imperative. So it's not as though the man is only given one command. Uh, it's that that's the command that stands out for the rest of the story. And of course, that comes to its climax in Genesis chapter three, but I'm not going to get there yet. And then, of course, in Genesis one, you also have the moral imperative that mankind is supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. Again, human beings are not to be lazy. They are to be rulers, which also implies that they are given responsibility over creation. So you could say that that's a moral imperative also. You also have the presence of the concept of immortality. So in the garden, the man is given access to the tree of life, which allows him to live forever. And that's actually pretty significant because it's not as though the man is immortal in and of himself. There is an external source of immortality. Specifically, it's the tree of life. But as we see at the conclusion of Genesis chapter 3, God himself is the gatekeeper to the tree of life. So therefore, God is the source of immortality. And that's pretty significant, too. The next thing Genesis 2 communicates is the context of human relationships. And one thing specifically there is gender roles. So the reason I use the term uh, for the woman that she was created as a helpmate and not a helper is more just because of what a helper means to us. Like if someone's your helper, it's sort of seen as a lesser. But the way that the language of Genesis 2 is written. The woman is not made as a subservient to the man. She's actually made to mirror the man. So they both have the same goals. They both have the same purpose. They are to help one another as companions. They're equals. And in fact, the way that the man uh, articulates who the woman is sort of shows that, right? This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. So the two are equal. In fact, it goes on to say, this is why a man will leave his father and mother, be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Right? There is that idea of total equality in terms of significance and place. But also human relationships in Genesis 2 don't just serve their own purpose. They're also serving the purpose of mirroring the relationship between God and humans. So again, they both have the same goal. God is in the process of creating and man also has a place in that process. Man is supposed to participate with God in creation. And so that is mirrored in the relationship between the man and the woman. And you also have a reference to the role and context of sexual activity. And similar to how the relationship between 
people is supposed to reflect the relationship between God and people. Human sexuality is also a reflection of the relationship between God and humans. It's not something that serves to gratify itself. It is a reflection. So, for example, creation is the product of both God and human activity working together. In the same way, creation is the product of human sexuality right, in conception. You also have the presence of the idea of opposite and same. So, for example, God is not man and man is not God, and yet they have relationship together. But they are also able to relate to one another, and that's reflected in the relationship between the man and the woman. They are both same in that they are both, you know, created beings, but they are also very different. And that comes to light in how human sexuality functions. It is two opposites working together, and the product of that union is creation. Kind of in the same way of referring to human sexuality, sex is not a shameful thing in the Genesis accounts. Um, obviously, that's reflected in the presence of the nakedness of the man and the woman. Right? They were naked, but they felt no shame. It's interesting because that phrase, they were naked, but they felt no shame, it seems to imply that they should feel shame at being naked. So it does imply that there is certainly a role of modesty when it comes to human activity. So while revealing that nakedness, uh, which is the human form, while it's not a bad thing, it does have a context and an appropriate context. All that to say that sex is a sacred thing that serves a purpose greater than itself. All right, so that's sort of the conclusion. Those are That's pretty much all I'm going to say about Genesis chapter 2. So in summary, Genesis 1 and 2 are separate creation accounts, but that's not a bad thing because they're both trying to communicate different theological ideas, and those ideas are very significant. The second thing is that humans are made for relationship. They are not made to just be totally individual. They're created to function in community, and that in itself is a reflection of the relationship between the divine and the human. Which leads to the third thing, which is that human relationships are intended to reflect the love, the goodness, and the creativity of God and his relationship with people. And then lastly, human sexuality has an appropriate role and an appropriate context within which to be exercised. And that's going to do it for this study of Genesis chapter 2. I hope you enjoyed it. Leave a like if you liked it. Also, let me know what you thought about it, what ideas you had. Was this challenging? Was there something you wish I would have talked about more? Or do you think I'm just a total heretic by saying the things that I did? Let me know. And be sure to subscribe. Also, that really helps out the channel. And you'll also be notified when we have new content that comes out. So with that being said, thank you for joining me for this episode, and I will see you next time. So there was something I forgot to mention in this video, so I'll just tag it on the end here. Um, so I was reading The Antiquities of the Jews, which is a work by Josephus, and uh, it's pretty interesting. When you compare the first two chapters of book one from Antiquities, from Antiquities of the Jews, they read incredibly similar to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which is no surprise really. But it is interesting that Josephus, uh, at the beginning of chapter 2 of book 1 of Antiquities of the Jews, which is a mirror to Genesis chapter 2, he's actually talking about Genesis 2 being a moment where Moses begins to talk philosophically. 
So the reason that's significant is because Josephus treats Genesis 1 as a literal account of creation, but Genesis 2 is more allegorical. I mean, someone correct me if I'm wrong, if you know Josephus's works better than me, but in reading it, like that's pretty much what he says. Uh, so, so this is what he says in chapter 2. Moreover, Moses, after the seventh day was over, begins to talk philosophically and concerning the formation of man, says thus, and then he goes on and it's pretty much the same account as Genesis chapter 2. But even the commentary for this that I have mentions uh, that it's interesting that Josephus is interpreting Genesis chapter 2 as more enigmatic, more allegorical, and not to be read as a literal event. So the way God is creating in Genesis 2 and the activity of the man is just a vehicle to communicate different ideas. But that's significant because that reflects that the Jewish community, at least the Jewish community of the first century CE, did not itself interpret Genesis 2 as a literal event that happened or a literal series of events. The way that a lot of at least Western Christians tend to interpret Genesis chapter 2, right? A lot of Western Christians, specifically more fundamental Christians, more fundamentalist Christians, tend to interpret Genesis 2 as a literal series of events that happened in a very specific place, but not even the ancient Jewish community interpreted it that way. So I think that's pretty interesting. And I just wanted to add that in. Uh, So if you find that interesting, there you go. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the PBNJ podcast. If you like this episode, be sure to leave a like, also leave a comment, subscribe and share. That'll really help us out and let us know what your thoughts are on this subject. And also, if you have any ideas of topics you'd like us to talk about, if you want to reach out to us, you can on all of our social medias, as well as email. You can email us at official.pbjpodcast at gmail.com and we will see you next time.